All right, so we're continuing on with uh, reviewing Botany in a Day by Thomas J. Elpel. And um, today we're going to explore the Mallow subclass, which when I first looked at this Mallow subclass, I kind of thought, oh, man, this all looks like lame stuff that we just have to like endure to get to the good stuff. But then as I started to read it more and more and more, it's like, no, wait. Here's here's lots of stuff in here that I'm powerful keen on. In fact, there's huckleberries. One of your favorite plants. Uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I had huckleberry pie just a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, uh, I'm I'm pretty I'm I'm pumped. The mallow subclass, uh, and so of course blueberries. Um, the the mustard family is in here. Um, um, Squash uh, family. Yep. Uh, the gourds, the melons, the uh, uh, the poop beasts are in here. The the poplars, the cottonwoods, and the willows. Um, so it turned out to be pretty packed full of all kinds of stuff. Only it's all hidden under the name mallow, which I thought, oh yeah, mallow. We I see that around a lot. Those little plants that grow on the ground, <laughs> and which I always thought had no use whatsoever until today. Um, and but we'll get to that in a moment. So. I'm not sure about the order that you have, but mine starts off with uh, the St. John Wart's St. John's Wart family. So this is Mallow subclass St. John's Wart order, and St. John's Wart family, and St. John's Wart family. And um, I, I mean, so there's a plant called St. John's Wort, and it grows. It grows prolifically like a weed around here, but there are some varieties which are apparently harvested for um, some sort of anti-depression stuff. Yeah, it's the Prozac plant. Oh, is it? Okay. All right. Um, and and I, I once knew somebody who, in, who grew a field of it, a monocrop of it, thinking that they were going to make a, a business of it, but then they had, like, tractor problems, and they ended up just, like, dropping it. And he's like, well, just got a big field of St. John's wort. We're not doing anything with it. But um, the funny, the funny thing is, it does. I mean, it grows naturally. So I kind of felt like, you know, if if you just threw seed out in that field and never fired up the tractor, you probably would have had a massive crop of it. Right. Or you can go and wild harvest it. It's uh, specifically the uh, European variety, Hypericum perforatum. Uh, which is the one that people consider a weed, you can go out and harvest it, and you're actually doing a service to the the community, or at least the native community, um, the native-loving community, because they go out and spray it as an invasive weed. Um, it's In many places, at least, it's sprayed with herbicides. So if people can go out and harvest it before that happens, then they can also sell the part of the plant that is used for the, the herbal tinctures, and for um, grinding up into powder for pills and those sorts of things. So now, um, so it's kind of I a win-win, right? I, I think the only the only interaction I've ever had with it is that sometimes I've pulled it out and and, and I've even used it as um, part of a mulch. So like I would like, oh geez, I've got a mountain of this stuff right here. So I'll I'll go in and and cut 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 cut, and then I'll stack it up in such a way that it it'll smother it. I mean like. You know, if there's a, a a patch that's ten units big, I'll I'll cut enough of it so that I'll p- 
pile it onto two units to smother out those two units. Does that make sense? Definitely. Chop and drop. Exactly. And sheet yeah. mulch to a degree. You know, I wonder if it's a nitrogen fixer. Because any time I've ever seen it growing, it's like it's doing extremely well. It's very happy. Well, which, which I guess is the side effect that you're looking for in the plant. <laughs> Happiness. Right. Happiness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I kind of wonder. It's like, wow, it sure is doing great there in this spot. It's just really grooving on that spot. And uh, it seems to be out-competing everything else in that spot. But it's, you know, not something that I feel like is doing a lot for me. And it does seem to kind of, like, take over and, like, not play well with others. Right, yeah, so I, I, I think it can spread by the root uh, through rhizomes, and then also it, it may have some microbial associations that allow it to uh, utilize poor soils, but I don't think it's a nitrogen fixer. Yeah, it doesn't have any of the leaves that look like a nitrogen fixer leaf, and um, uh, at, at the same time, I've, I've never heard of it suggest that. It just seems like it'll be vibrant green in a spot where it seems like there's no nitrogen there. So that's what kind of makes me think, like, huh, why is this thing so damn happy, but nothing else will be happy there? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but, but I doubt it's a nitrogen fixer. You can always double-check pull by pulling it out and see if, seeing if it has nodules on the, on the roots. So the next order <clears throat> is, uh, so we have the mallow subclass, the mallow order, uh, and, uh, and the basswood family. And then the basswood family is the linden tree. Right, Tiliaceae. Um, is it Tiliaceae? Oh, Tili, Tiliaceae is the, is the basswood family. Right, and then lindens are Tilias. Tilia. Tilia. That's their, that's their genus. Correct. Yeah. Now, I have no idea what a linden is. I don't know if I've ever seen a linden tree. But I do remember from having watched the video 20 times, uh, The Man Who Planted Trees that um, late in the video, there's somebody who says they've planted a linden tree as a sign of hope. And it's kind of like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't get that. Uh, and so I've kind of had this curiosity about uh, the linden tree. Now, apparently, it's not native to Montana, but it is planted domestically. So like some people must think, ooh, linden trees are lovely. Um, well, but, but there are, pretty, and they have big leaves. And the American basswood is a native uh, to the northeastern part of the continent. Mm -hmm. uh, they have pretty soft wood, and they grow relatively fast. And in particular, they're one of the trees where you can eat their leaves. So they're a variety of perennial vegetable per se. Um, you can eat the young leaves uh, that are growing, and you could probably chop them back and coppice them, similar to like the edible mulberry. Uh, where you continue it to force it to produce new young growth and so that you can eat them throughout the season. So I kind of marked off a couple of things about the linden tree, <clears throat> one of them being what you just said, that they're edible, but, but even more. It says the tree may be tapped for syrup. The young leaves are somewhat mucilaginous and edible raw. Linden provides a quality cordage material uh, cut long strips of bark from the tree, please use some ethics here, and soak them in water for at least a week to separate the inner and outer bark. The inner bark can be split into narrower strips with the aid of a fingernail. 
So, um, I don't know. Yeah, cordwood. I mean, uh, yeah, cordage. Cordage from from a, a linden tree in her bark. Interesting. I like how it says that you can even uh, make it extra strength by boiling the fibers in a mix of ashes and water for about 24 hours. That's a long boil. That is. It's a lot of wood or gas. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it makes like such super powerful cordage that it's like totally worth it. <laughs> yeah, that would be something to do some research on. So, continuing with the mallow order, uh, uh, the next family is the mallow family. Dun da da dum. So we've got mallow subclass, mallow order, mallow family, mallow, mallow, mallow. And um, and inside of this uh, is the plant, is the cotton plant, okra, and then of course the uh, the origins of marshmallows. Right, the um, Althea officinalis, the marshmallow. The root or seeds are covered with water and boiled until half the liquid is gone. Then the liquid is beaten into a froth and sugar is added. It should make something resembling whipped cream. The plants contain natural gums called mucilage, pectin, and asparagin, which gives them their slimy, mucilaginous characteristic. It is the presence of these gums that creates the marshmallow effect. The members of the mallow family are mostly edible as salad greens and pot herbs, although not very commonly used, probably due to their slimy consistency. The flowers and seeds are also edible. So, um, <laughs> slimy and mucilaginistic seems to have been a, a theme on this page right. that came up over and over and over again. So these these could be called the slime family. <laughs> <laughs> they could, and uh, you know, it's a, being able to use them edibly as, as leaves in particular kind of just depends on your personal tolerances and preferences. Like I really like eating the mallow family plants, and for example, one of the ones that I find is more Mucoliginous is called the edible hibiscus. It's a, a tropical uh, shrub perennial with big edible leaves that are about the size of a, a dinner plate. And it, it's significantly mucousy. Um, however, it's a wonderful vegetable. It grows very easily. And, you know, I like to mix it in with other things and salads or put it on a sandwich with avocado or things like that where it's already kind of slimy so you don't notice it as much. So there's lots of ways to kind of doctor it so that um, the the texture is is balanced because I think the flavors are, are really good that a lot of these plants provide. And things so now, like Malva neglecta, the, the small ground-growing mallow that most people are familiar with, um, it's a little bit mucousy as well, but it's a wonderful plant. It, it'll grow anywhere pretty much uh, without any attention, especially around cultivated areas. It just kind of fills in. You can eat the seeds and the flowers and the leaves. Um, so it's something where you can have no maintenance on it except for harvest, which is are plants that I really like. Yeah, I mean, it grows around here like, well, like a weed. I mean, it's it's an, it's all over the place around here. It, is, it seems like most yards that are untended, where they don't do anything with the yards and they, they mow way too short, then um, they, they end up with a lot of mallow in it. 
So any any and, and paths, a lot of paths are just rich in this plant. The, the, so um, and okay, the notes that I've got for this for the for just the, I'm just thinking of like the 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 one that you just mentioned that's so common that it's growing everywhere. Um, it is edible as a salad green or pot herb, and it's a good stew thickener. Mallows are rich in calcium and iron. So how does it taste if you eat it? I think it tastes kind of like spinach, personally. Um, that, that's just me. Uh, maybe kind of halfway between spinach and stinging nettle, but it's got that you know kind of more mucusy texture. Um, something that that's interesting because of that, uh, that's related to the the mucus, is that they're mildly astringent, and so they can be used for soothing sunburns or other inflamed conditions, or for soothing sore throats. You know, so on the flip side, that that mucus can be put to to quality use as a treatment. Okay. Um, one of the things I, I really like is in the marshmallow family, or genus, sorry, um, the Altheas is are the hollyhocks, which a lot of people are probably familiar with. And I've never eaten their leaves, but their flowers are really tasty. And uh, that's one method I use to kind of limit the number of seeds that they produce, because they tend to produce a lot of seeds per plant and spread rapidly. Um, and a lot of these plants have wonderful flowers. So if you want a plant that's both edible and an insectary and adds to the aesthetics of the site, um, you know, this is a good family to look into and choose from. So I'm looking at the different drawings of the different, and it's like, you know, you would think that if you're in the same um, family, that the leaves would look really similar. But boy, these leaves are, are like, every leaf is completely different from the leaf of every other plant in this family. Right. There's a, a wide range of shapes. And the, the flower is what's really similar. And then the, the seed head, they have those, they're often called cheeses because they have that seed head that's got the kind of cheese wedge rounded uh, shape. Right, the little the little round thing? Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, the next family that's in my book is the sundew family, um, which I've never seen before. Um, it has uh, some. It, it includes the Venus flytrap, and um, there's one called sundew, which apparently as uh, as a native, they have some natives of in Montana. But I've I'm looking at the the drawings here, and, and I don't recall having ever seen anything like any of these. Yeah, you know these type of plants often occur in areas that are really uh, nutrient deficient, uh, in particular nitrogen and phosphorus deficient. Uh, so swamps or uh, really leached out. Uh, landscapes where there's not a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus left and that's why they eat insects because they can get the nitrogen and phosphorus from the insects rather than the soil. Okay. And so they're not, not often very common. Um, and that, But they're often found kind of uh, near swamps and places like that where there's a lot of water flowing through the landscape to leach the nutrients. The next one I have is the mallow subclass the violet order, the violet family, um, and and of course, you know, it's it's typically going to be an ornamental plant, but it's also um, quite edible. I think I think I've even mentioned here that pretty much everything in this um, family is edible. Um, worldwide, there are 16 genera and 850 species, and then just under um, the viola genus. Then I've marked off all of our species of viola are edible as a salad or pot herb. Some are better than others. Right, and the flowers are all edible too, which is nice. Right, I've ha I've eaten a lot of the blossoms before. 
Um, but I just don't remember eating any of the uh, the rest of the plant. Yeah, I've never eaten the leaves actually either. Uh, something to note here I thought was uh, interesting is that the African violet is not a member of the violet family. Oh, weird. So those one, huh. ones that they sell a lot in, in nurseries as house plants um, are not, not ones that you want to try eating, I guess. <laughs> so next up is Mallow subclass, Violet Order. So that's the same order. <clears throat> Still in the same order, but now it's the Loesa family. Um, and, and it sounds, and it's got one in there called Rock Nettle, but, um, which I'm not, oh, it's just found in the deserts. Um, I've never, I've never encountered it. Um, not, not native to Montana. <clears throat> uh, and then there's something called Blazing Star, which is, got some, uh, Montana natives. But, um, for the most part, I wasn't getting anything out of this plant. Yeah, the the Menzelias, the Blazing Stars, are the only ones it mentions as Montana natives, and also there's natives in California and other places in the U.S., but uh, I, I'm unfamiliar with these plants also, even though they are yeah. plants of arid lands. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't see a lot of, of intense uses for them either from this uh, description. So then I, we get into the um, Mega Giant Super Duper family, um, the mallow subclass violet order, so we're still in the you know the violet order, the gourd family, right? Which is the cucurbitaceae family. Uh, you're right. So um, uh, and then then later there's going to be the genus uh, cucurbitae uh, or cucur cucur. Well, cucurbits. I've always heard of them referred to as cucurbits, but right. but it's like uh, it must be from the um, the genus cucurbitae, and it shows that um, uh, globally under cucurbitae there are 20 species. Um, four of them are uh, natural uh, or native to North America, but in Montana only domesticated. And so um, that would I mean that's going to be your your pumpkins and your squashes and stuff like that. Right, and your your cultivated cucumbers and a lot of the melons as well are in, in cucurbita. And then also uh, there's some, some wild uh, cucurbits that are native to North America, in particular cucurbita foetidissima, which is uh, the buffalo gourd, which grows really well in, in arid climates and is very drought tolerant and is perennial and has edible seeds. So now for the <clears throat> for the whole gourd family, a bit that they've got marked off here is is worldwide there are 100 genera and 850 species, including 14 genera in North America. Pumpkins, squash, zucchini, and gourds belong to the cucurbita genus of this family. Muskmelon, cantaloupe, honeydew, and cucumbers belong to the cucumis genus of the family. Okay. So I misspoke yeah. then. Yes. Other other family members include watermelon, citrullus, uh something I have no idea what that is, and I'm not gonna try to pronounce Chayote. it. Chayote. That's a really common one that, or it's also called choco. And the genus name is Stechium. Uh, that's a really common one as you get to the subtropical climates. It's a perennial yep. climbing, vining squash. It's a wonderful, oh. wonderful plant. Great permaculture plant. 
and the loofah vegetable sponge, which, by the way, I've, I've been doing a lot of experimenting in the last four months with loofah, um, you know, as, as not just because most people use loofah for like in the shower or in the bathroom, but I've been using it as a scrubberoo in the kitchen, and I've been having awesome success with that because it's like I've always used the little scrubberoos that were plastic, and I, I'm trying to get away from plastics. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea as a, as a alternative to plastic. They're, yeah, they're tough been... to grow in climates with short growing seasons because they have about a 110 to 120 day growing season. Because <clears throat> you really need that that gourd or, or squash to mature all the way. That's how it dries out and creates that not really fibrous interior that becomes the sponge. Pumpkin seeds contain alkaloids capable of arresting cell division. Useful for certain types of cancer. Warning, some genera contain toxic alkaloids. Dun, dun, dun. And then under uh, cucurbita, I marked off the massive root of these contain large amounts of saponin. It can be chopped and used for soap. Or so fish I'm kind poison. of like, <laughs> yeah, or fish poison. Yeah. <laughs> so because soap is a fish poison apparently no, <laughs> consistently because when fish piss you off you you now have a means of revenge that's right you and your family are going down fish well, now, now you have um, several different ways we have planned redundancy for fishing tactics you have fly fishing you have trawl fishing you have dynamite you have electrical fishing <laughs> you have fish poison with you know soapy roots it's great. You've, but, you've got lots of opportunities there. <laughs> the big thing I was thinking about is that you could grow your pumpkins or other squash, and then after you're done harvesting your pumpkins, you could dig up the roots, cut them into little bits, and make soap. Right, yeah, that sounds like a great opportunity. I think that would be a good use for the uh, the buffalo gourd also. Apparently it has roots that are about three or four feet long and is several inches in diameter. I just never thought of that use before. I just think that's awesome. So, uh, moving on. Are you got anything else to say about gourds? Uh, no, no. I think that that's great. I, I love them. They're just one of the more uh, prolific ground cover plants for establishing food forests. So, uh, I recommend everyone give them a shot. So now uh, we move on to. Uh, we're still in the mallow subclass. So the mallow subclass, the willow order. The poop beast family. The poop beast family, Salicaceae. <laughs> so uh, it says willow family, but I I drew a line through it and I wrote poop beast instead. So I'm renaming this family. That, that's great. I think that it, it's good to call it what you use it for. Yeah, yeah, and and so I think I think everything in this family uh, is a is a poop beast. I mean, is there anything in the family that's not? Well, it says there's only two to three genres, so I don't know what the other one might be besides Populus and Salix, but if it, it if Populus and Salix are the only genre, then definitely they're all poop beasts. So worldwide, there are two to three genera and 350 to 500 species. The members of this family contains varying amounts of the simple phenol glycosides Populin, salicin, and methyl salicylate. Salicylate. Methyl salicylate. 
That's what I meant to say. <laughs> From which the common aspirin was originally derived. These properties are strongest in the inner bark, but are also present in the leaves. Like aspirin, the willow family is used for fevers, headaches, arthritis, and other inflammations, particularly in the urinary tract. Unfortunately, the presence of tannic acid in the bark makes it difficult to ingest enough salicin to affect a common headache. A strong tea of the leaves might prove more effective without the bad taste. All right, I, I think that that's rather fascinating. I mean, I suppose one of the things that one might be studying this stuff for is in the uh, possible future event where where things go wonky and you're being a little bit more independent. And, and you know, it's like, okay, um, somebody is suffering from an extreme headache of one type or another or, or some kind of pain, and, and, you know, this might be a helpful thing to know. Um, right. But the, so basically, it sounds like the leaves might be the thing that you might want to set aside for a tea. You could also make a, a poultice out of them. I'd like to double check this, but uh, often methyl salicylate is used in uh, like sports creams or, or type types of uh, creams that you rub on bruises and sore muscles and things like that. So I, I think you could make a poultice out of the leaves or even the bark since you're not ingesting it and uh, put it on to a, a bruise or a sore muscle or something like that. So that, that would be something relatively simple and easy to do that you know diverts the idea of the the bad taste. And then also willow is great as a producer of rooting hormone if you're trying to do cuttings or other plant propagation. Right, right. It just exudes it exudes this hormone so that if you take the the um, uh, if you if you soak willow bits in in water and you just then you uh, uh, use that water with some other sprig, it'll start to root just because it's like it just that hormone of, uh, is is transferred through the water into the whole other plant. Right. So um, uh, onto the populous genus. It's genus, right? Why? Is, if I'm talking about just one genaru, it's the the proper word to use is genus. Correct. So. For the populous genus, there are 40 species, and seven of them are native to Montana, including poplar, cottonwood, and aspen. The inner bark and sap of the cottonwood is reportedly sweet early in the spring and was eaten by the Indians. So now, I kind of get this feeling that they go and they rip off a bunch of bark, and then they scrape out the inner bark, and then they just sit there and eat it straight. Just right there, chompity chomp chomp. I've never done it, so I don't know exactly the technique for actually harvesting it or eating it. Okay. The great thing about these I'm species is that they're all coppiceable. So when you cut down, you know, a tree to harvest the bark, um, especially you're probably cutting a, a relatively young tree to harvest the inner bark, but I'm not positive um, that they'll grow right back, and they grow really quickly. So, you know, in a couple of years, you might have a 10-foot-tall a tree again. Um, perhaps this is a good time to point out the whole reason why we call it a poop beast. I'm not sure in this podcast series we've mentioned this at all. But um, uh, the, the thing is, is that if you have one of these trees growing next to an outhouse, 
that it will gobble up whatever it finds under the outhouse so that it doesn't end up going into your drinking water. Um, it's, it's really quite hungry that way. Um, and, and another one is, is the idea that uh, for some of the composting toilet systems where it uh, uh, uses a cold compost or a long-term compost, then uh, a lot of the poop material from them will be set aside for two years to kill all the pathogens. And then the plan is, is that you take it out after two years and then put it at the base in the springtime at, at the base of a poop beast tree, and then it'll just gobble it right up. So then your poop is effectively converted into tree. Right, and that can be used as firewood or growing for a windbreak. Uh, Populus and salix are often really good for stream restoration efforts, um, erosion control, those sorts of things. Uh, Basketry is often uh, a use for willow. There's even a willow that's specifically for making charcoal and charcoal pencils, the pencil willow. Uh, So there's lots of of uses for these plants. They're they're one of the most multifunctional plant groups uh, around. Right. Very, very good homesteading uh, trees and also uh, very good permaculture trees. Right. Yeah, like, for example, right now I have uh, poplars and cottonwoods planted in my windbreak, and they're basically the the short-term windbreak species. So they grow anywhere from 3 foot to 10 foot per year, uh, depending on the age. As they get older, they grow more quickly. And so they'll quickly be up to 15 or 20 foot and have a, a windbreak effect. And then as soon as some of my other plants in the windbreak grow up, then I can cut those down and harvest them for firewood, and then they'll regrow, and I can do a coppice rotation for firewood production from them as well. And they're softwood, fast-burning. They're not great firewood, but they'll be the the first on-site firewood production. And who doesn't enjoy breaking wind once in a while? That's right. Uh, The next uh, family is a mallow subclass caper order, caper family. So I'm, I'm guessing that, that this is the plant where you get capers from. Yes, and, and other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> For example, there's the, the Rocky Mountain bee plant, the Cleome cerulata, and, and Cleomes in general, the bee plants, are also uh, known as, I, my understanding is the fourth sister, that you can plant them with the... Uh, the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, and they act as an insectary for that and grow in a beneficial relationship with those plants. Um, and so that was the only thing that I spotted in there was the bee plant that, that seemed to be of interest to me. Is there anything else that's in there that, that you think is interesting? Um, not necessarily for the areas that I am, uh, but they're, they're maybe I'm just not familiar with any of these genus. I need to, to get some more information on them. So now we move on to another big, big family, and uh, so we get the mallow subclass, the caper order, so we're still in the caper order, and the mustard family. Worldwide, there are 375 genera and 3,200 species. About 55 genera are found in North America. So this is the brassicaceae. Uh, or also the Cruciferiae. Cruciferiae. And w- what happened was yeah. that they, they renamed uh, several families and, and mustards in particular. Um, Cruciferiae was the old family name, and that was based on the fact that most mustards have four petals that are in a cross shape on their flower blossoms. So Crucifer, cross. 
but now we've changed it to the brassicaceae to to represent the brassicas, the most common and and broadly used of the brassicaceae plants. So this includes uh, horseradish, watercress, radish, turnips, and mustards. <clears throat> um, commercial mustards are usually made from the seeds of the black mustard. Uh, interestingly, six of our common vegetables, cabbage, cauliflower, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, and kale were all bred from a single species, Brassica, Brassica oleraceae. Yep. Plant breeders develop the starch storage abilities of different plants, different parts of the plant, to, be, to come up with each unique vegetable. I, uh, I'd heard this before, um, and I, it was, I, I have to admit that it uh, was a little hard to believe until um, now I'm, I'm seeing it printed in a book. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, I'm just kind of a, a book bigot or something. Right. Uh, well, if you've ever grown out uh, several of those plants in the same area, like uh, collards and, and cauliflower and cabbage and, and broccoli and kale, uh, and collected seed from it and grown it again, then you'll re- realize that they rapidly uh, hybridize <laughs> and, and give you things that are unexpected. But now, is the entire plant edible? I, I think so, yeah. Um, you know, it depends on how long you let it grow. For example, the stalk often gets very pithy and fibrous. Um, but if you get the younger parts of the stalk, that's edible as well. Um, the roots, all, again, real pithy and fibrous. The ones that are better for roots are the, the raffinous, the radish plants. Okay. All right. So um, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking like, uh, wow, you could, you could grow uh, cabbage, and then when it bolts... You could eat the stock like broccoli, but you might find it to be distasteful. Yeah, well, and it might be hard to chew. It's pretty fibrous. <laughs> I know that um, I, I uh, have a, a podcast where I interview Sally Fallon Morell, and and um, for a moment there, we, we I mean, we were talking about raw milk was our dominant thing that we're talking about, but somehow broccoli came up, and you kind of get the impression that while she is a powerful advocate of plants with good nutrition that apparently broccoli doesn't make the cut. She, she seems to think that broccoli is not a good thing to grow. And I, I kind of feel like I need to have another podcast with her so I can go back and touch on that again and find out exactly why. So, um, I now, now suddenly I'm, I'm, I mean, I've, broccoli used to be one of my, uh, primary, uh, greens to eat. And now I'm feeling like, uh, I've I've been cutting back on broccoli because somehow Sally Fan Morel thinks it's not a good idea. Does she not like any of the brassica oleracea plants? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I want to find out. Hmm. I I know that she's a big fan of fermenting foods, and so you would think that you know cabbage, right? Seems to be like one of the most popular things to ferment. But um, I I'm just I'm just really I'm curious. I don't I don't know. I want to find out. <laughs> so um, suddenly now there's a, a broccoli has a bad name. <laughs> Crazy, you know. So yeah, yeah. Just because just because of Sally Fallon Morell just said it in passing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm not going to stop eating uh, some of my favorite vegetables, like for example, kale and, and collards and such, just for 
just because they don't make Sally's cat. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I am. I've, I've, I have already cut back on broccoli because of that brief little ten-second mention, and um, and so now, and I need to. Now I'm kind of curious why I'm avoiding it now. Um, and but it's just that Sally is, of course, so rather brilliant and and. Um, extremely knowledgeable and such a powerful advocate of good nutrition that it kind of makes you wonder like wow what happened in the world of broccoli <laughs> what happened there okay so um uh under this is kind of an an interesting thing uh for the um genus nasturtium is not nasturtium it's uh watercress right nasturtium is not even in the mustard family yeah isn't that crazy? Weird. Um, so under watercress, it's one of the few greens of winter. Uh, watercress is rich in vitamin C, iron, and iodine. Um, and and it's like, uh, I, which I think iodine is one where I've been reading a lot that we don't get nearly enough of. Um, oh, and then and then here's one, Thalaspi. It's a genus Thalaspi, and I'm going to guess it's Thalaspi arvensis uh, field pennycress. Is, is one that um, I've got a video out about it. The plant can be used as a salad green or pot herb in moderate amounts. Um, I know that um, I, I think that the, the pennycress is a great plant in permaculture because it does most of its growing in the wintertime and then um, throughout the spring and summer it's pretty much dormant. And so it's it's kind of like this uh, um, it's, it's like a it's I want to say it's a living mulch, but it's not exactly a living mulch. It's it's dormant. It's dead-ish, and and so then it's kind of protecting the soil and the ground, um, and it's not competing with other plants. Right, and and a lot of the um, mustard family plants can be winter annuals or kind of a cool season perennials, which is I think what you're you're describing. Yeah, I think I think pennycress is an annual, but that it's like so it's a winter it, annual. It grows in the cool season, starts growing in the fall, kind of grows dormant in the winter, starts completes its life cycle in the spring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I think it actually does most of its growing, I believe, in the winter and very early spring, and then um, throughout the late spring and throughout all of summer, it's brown and dry and dormanty looking and it's you know got little seed pods that look like pennies they're the size of a penny and and hence penny crest but um and then I think it just drops those seeds and then that starts the the cycle over again but um I don't know I always kind of thought it was an amazing little plant and and so it's kind of part of that series of plants that I've gotten videos of where it's kind of like oh you know for those people that go out and spray and rip out all weeds it's like Here's one that you want to encourage. It's it's kind of like a big helper plant in your in your garden efforts, right? Yeah, and there's there's you know some other really good good brassicas along those lines too that are um, kind of like perennial plants as well. Uh, for example, there's the perennial arugula sylvetta, and it's kind of it's a wild variety of arugula, and it's uh, its name is Diplotaxis erucoides. Uh, you'll see arugulas here under rocket salad or eruca, and uh, so the Diplotaxis erucoides is like arugula, and it grows it grows where I am. I, once I got it established, I haven't watered it. Um, so with you know six or seven inches of 
of water a year, it, it grows perennial. So that's a you know really hardy plant that you could use in a food forest uh, as long as it gets enough sun. Another one that's commonly used that's a a much larger vegetable is called the Turkish rocket. That's a perennial vegetable, kind of like a perennial broccoli. I wonder if it might be more nutritious than the annual broccoli. And that plant's name is the uh, Buneus orientalis, Turkish rocket. That's a, a perennial mustard plant as well. So if we're looking for these plants that are, again, kind of low low maintenance as far as you don't have to plant them again year after year, and mo- most of your maintenance is harvesting and maybe uh, propagation and potentially some mulching, uh, those, those are really good opportunities. So uh, I'm not even seeing those in this list here. Are you getting those out of another book, or do you just have them memorized? Um, combination of the above. I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> with them enough that I can look them up and get more information. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> On the fly. Well, and I, I'm growing the, the Silvetta. I don't have the Turkish rocket. Um, it's, I think I might be in a little too dry of a climate for it, but I'm going to give it a shot uh, at some point. But right now I have grown the Silvetta and have grown it out for seed and you can pick it up from, you know, Johnny Seed or several other seed companies in the in the US and it's been really great for me. Really easy to grow, highly productive, the bees love it. Don't have to do anything except harvest. <laughs> and doesn't that sound like permaculture? That that sounds like the type of permaculture <laughs> I want to promote. It's mo- mostly harvest after setup. You know, it's a lot of right. oh, a yeah. lot of work in the setup, but then backing off after <laughs> And, and I, I just think that's kind of the mission, is that if you set it up right, you don't ever have to uh, do anything but harvest um, for years to come. <clears throat> so moving on to the next family, uh, it's the Mallow subclass, the Heath order, the Heath family, and then there's the Rhododendron subfamily. Yes, um, and the Heath subfamily. Do you have the Heath subfamily in yours? No. Okay, it's just a, I don't think so. a little blurb on mine, and this is where you, oh, there it you is. have the heather there plants. And heather's a, the cassiope, or cassiope. Um, they're great shade-loving ground covers. Okay, but I, so um, mine's got a different order on the pages. Oh, I see, what it is. okay. So some things have been moved. There's also the Indian pipe subfamily and the pyrola subfamily. Okay, mine has even made those their own families rather than subfamilies. Man, things change, don't they? They do. So, um, uh, but then out of the Heath order, um, and, and there's only one other subfamily in the Heath order. So let's see. There's that I in this book. There's the the. So for this, for my book, under the Heath family, there's the Rhododendron subfamily, the Heath subfamily, the Pyrola subfamily, and the Indian Pipe subfamily, and then the last subfamily is the Blueberry subfamily, which is my favorite. Yeah, this is kind of the highlight here because this includes huckleberries, right, and blueberries, and manzanita berries, and all sorts of other tasty treat berries that you get out of the forest. So this is the Ericaceae family, the Heath family. And they're typified by these little, the, the blueberry subfamily is typified by these little bell-shaped flowers in particular. They look like just little uh, morning bells or church bells or something hanging off of the flower. And then they grow into these beautiful berries. 
So now, um, uh, inside of the blueberry subfamily, then uh, there's knick-knick and bearberry uh, and salal um, and madrone. And wintergreen. But now, for wintergreen, though, I mean, there's there's like... Wintergreen seems to come up a lot in a lot of different families. Right. And, and so it's kind of like, all right, so it's, uh, I think that's one of those ones where it's kind of like, they're going to call it wintergreen, but... Well, know. it says here that the Galtheria procumbens, the ground cover wintergreen from the eastern U.S., was the original source of wintergreen oil. A volatile oil and spice later extracted from the twigs of black birch and finally produced synthetically. Okay. Under uh, under the uh, um, gene, genus Vaxinium, did I, did I pronounce that correctly? Vaxinium. That's, that's yeah. what I call it. My- okay. All right. Uh, there's there's one little note here, and this is this is for blueberry, huckleberry, cranberry, bilberry, and lignanberry. Um, <clears throat> A cup or, uh, cup or two of leaf tea every day can lower the sugar level in both the blood and urine. Now, the reason why I marked this is that when I was listening to that presentation a while back from uh, the, the Blackfeet gal, then um, she was saying like something like, I don't understand why you guys are so bonkers about the huckleberry. I mean, we never thought that it tasted all that great. Um, but one thing we did do is we harvested all the leaves and stuff, and then we we pretty much have a, a tea every day that's huckleberry tea that's you know made from the leaves and the berries um and and i and so so she was going on to say that that what they found palatable and tasty was quite different from what people seem to find palatable and tasty you know from the white folk um uh and so yeah they didn't i mean uh, for the huckleberries i mean i there is i i cannot imagine any pie being better than huckleberry and i've tried a lot of pie in my day <laughs> and it's just it just has this amazing flavor and it is something also where um uh you, you, i mean you can't you 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 can't raise it in your backyard it's it's not something that can be transplanted anyway, or or started from seed just naturally. It's it only grows in the wild. So um, uh, and and the flavor, it's I mean it's it's like a blueberry, but it's better. And I'm not sure how to describe that as better. But um, uh, I I'm I'm not even that big of a fan of blueberry pie. I've had some nice blueberry pie. Don't get me wrong. And blueberry is is a nice flavor, but. Boy, huckleberry is so much better, and and I'm talking about the huckleberries that are here in Montana, because like when you get out towards the Seattle area, then they have what they call a red huckleberry, um, which is like a completely different kind of berry. It's it's uh, it's much smaller and it grows on a on a very different looking kind of plant. So um, as opposed to the ones that we have here. Yeah, I'm not familiar with all the different species in the, the Vaccinium genus. I know that it's very uh, broad as a genus. It has many, many species, and uh, it says here 200 worldwide, 8 in Montana, uh, just according to to Thomas Elpel's list. And a lot of them are, are evergreens. Uh, a lot of them really like 
acidic soil and to grow near bogs. Uh, a lot of them produce these wonderful berries. A lot of them you can drink the, the leaves, uh, drink a tea of the leaves from. So, you know, maybe rather than just uh, focusing on the berries, the ability to use the leaves as tea gives you a, a much wider range of use, even for ones that have little berries that aren't as tasty. So now, um, for the mallow subclass, we have one family left, and that's the primrose family. Do you, do you have any comments with the primrose family? Um, you know, I was surprised that there were some edible uh, plants in this. The shooting star, uh, dodecatheon, says the whole plant is edible. I didn't know that. Usually I just thought of it as a flower. And then also the loosestrife, which is, you have to be careful because apparently... Uh, purple loosestrife is is not the loosestrife that they're talking about. Um, so there's several plants called loosestrife, but they're talking about Lysomachia is also edible um, and used to repel gnats and flies when burned as a smudge. Oh, the live plant and burned as a smudge both repel gnats and flies, which is always a nice thing to repel, in my opinion. <laughs> so... Um and that that wraps up the uh, the mallow subclass. Uh, the next the next one the next podcast that we do is going to be massive. We're to, we might have to break it up into a couple of different podcasts. But okay, so uh, anything else about uh, the mallow subclass? Uh, no, I think that we covered everything that that I was looking at talking about. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about. Berries, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. <laughs>